Welcome, Welcome to Crime Chasers. Crime Chasers. My name is FJ. And I'm MJ. And we are two true crime-obsessed best friends who want to highlight people of color who went undetected for crimes and, more importantly, raise awareness for the victims who are often neglected or denied justice as a result of their skin color. Before we get into the case, I would love to ask my co-host, how many crimes do you think you could commit in one week? I feel like a week is not a lot of time. Maybe one or two? And they're not big ones. They're like, maybe still a candy bar. <laughs> well, the two brothers we discussed this week were able to commit over 100 counts of crimes. Wow. Our case begins with a 25-year-old woman named H.G. H.G. is obviously not her real name, but for privacy concerns, we're going to call her H.G. H.G. worked as a school teacher in Wichita, Kansas. On December 14, 2000, H.G. went to the home of her boyfriend, Jason, who was 26 at the time. He also worked as a school teacher and a coach at Augusta High School. Her boyfriend lived in a condo with his two college best friends, Bradley, who worked as a financial analyst, and Aaron, who was studying to join the priesthood. So he was planning to be a man of the claw. Yes, ma'am. So H.G. arrived at the home with her pet dog, Nikki, around 8.30 p.m. Her boyfriend was still at school, Aaron's former girlfriend, Heather, arrived shortly after. Heather was a graduate student at Wichita State University. Around 9 p.m., H.G. went to her boyfriend's bedroom and began grading her student's work. At around 9.15, her boyfriend arrived. H.G. was getting a bit tired and decided to go to bed around 10 o'clock. Her boyfriend wanted to make sure all the lights in the home were turned off before joining his girlfriend, and he saw his roommate Aaron sleeping on the couch and Heather sleeping on the second ground floor bedroom and Bradley was asleep in his room in the basement. HG at this point was asleep and her boyfriend stayed up for a bit longer. Shortly after 11 p.m., the porch light came on. Jason went down to the door to investigate and HG woke up to the sound of her boyfriend crying out in surprise as she saw someone force their way through their bedroom door. The man came towards her and ripped the covers off the bed. As another man emerged with Aaron from the living room, H.E. would later testify that both men were black and armed. The men held Aaron by gunpoint and forced Aaron onto the bed. The men began questioning H.G. and wanted to know who else was in the home. Terrified and concerned, they informed the traders where Bradley was, who you remember was down in the basement, and Heather, who was sleeping on the second ground floor. The men found both Bradley and Heather and brought them to Jason's room. The intruders instructed the hostages at this point to take off all their clothes, they instructed them to go to the bedroom closet and began bringing the hostages out to the area roughly 12 feet away from the closet where there was a wet bar. The hostages were then brought out one by one or in pairs for sex. The intruders would frequently wave their guns and threaten to kill the hostages if there were any whispers. 
Now for our listeners, I want to provide a trigger warning. The following segment will address the graphic details of this case. If you are uncomfortable, please stop. The intruders first brought out HG and Heather and forced them to have oral and digital sex with each other. They then had HG have sex with Bradley, who is her boyfriend's roommate, remember? Following this, they made HG have sex with Jason, but made her stop when they realized that was her boyfriend, which was so strange, because after that, they made HG have sex with Aaron, the other roommate. Mind you, Aaron's starting to become a priest, so he refused, and as a result, was hit in the back of the head with a gun. At this time, the intruder sent HG back to the closet and brought out Heather. When Aaron couldn't perform, the intruders beat him with a golf club, informing Aaron that he had until 11.54 p.m. to get hard, and they counted down. As the clock struck 11.54, there was no punishment, and Aaron was brought back to the closet. The intruders then grabbed Jason and forced him to have sex with Heather, while also instructing Bradley to do the same. HG would later hear Heather's cries as she moaned with absolute pain. One of the intruders then asked the victims for their ATM cards. Each victim was then taken one by one to the ATM machine. They drove Jason's pickup truck to get to the locations. The other man brought HG out of the closet and proceeded to rape her and send her back to the closet. During this time, Aaron asked Bradley if they should try to fight, but Bradley did not respond. During the ATM runs, HG volunteered to go next. The man who raped her let her put on her sweater, but nothing else. He said he liked seeing her with no underwear. He ordered her to drive to the ATM and instructed her not to look at him as he sat in the back seat. On their drive, HG asked him, are you going to hurt us? And he said, no. Then she said, do you promise you're not going to kill us? And he said, yes. Once at the ATM, HG got the money and on their way back to the house, the man said he had wished they met on different circumstances, saying she was cute and they would probably have hit it off. But he also told her to relax and said, I'm not going to kill you. Yet. Once they arrive at the house, the man rapes her again and makes a point to ejaculate in her mouth. While his partners raped Heather, the intruders began looking through the house for money. They found a coffee can that contained an engagement ring, one that Jason had bought for HG. That's for you, he told her. I was going to ask you to marry me. He wanted to propose the following Friday, December 22. The intruders took the victims outside and it was freezing. It was roughly 17 degrees Fahrenheit and there was snow everywhere. The women were allowed to wear their sweaters but were naked from the waist down and barefoot. The men on the other hand were completely naked. Initially, the intruders tried to stuff their victims into the trunk of Aaron's car but quickly realized they wouldn't all fit. So they made all the men get in the trunk and Heather in Aaron's car while one intruder drove Jason's car with only HG. HG noted the time of 2.07 a.m. They've been enduring this terror for roughly three hours. After a few minutes, the vehicle stopped at an empty field. HG was ordered to go sit with Heather in Aaron's car. Moments later, the men were lined up in front of the car. HG turned to Heather and said, they're going to shoot us. The intruders then instructed HG and Heather out of the car. HG stood next to Jason, Heather stood next to Aaron and they were all ordered to turn away and kneel in the snow. HG notes that as she was kneeling, a gun went off. She then heard Aaron begging, please sir, no sir, and the gun went off again. HG heard three more shots and then she was hit in the head. She stated later, 
I felt the bullet hit the back of my head. It went kind of gray and white like stars. Luckily, she didn't go unconscious, nor did she fall forward. One of the men kicked her and she fell. She played dead out of fear of being shot again. As H.E. lay in the snow, the intruders drove off in Jason's pickup and began running over the victims. She would later tell police how she felt the truck run over her body. She said, I waited until I couldn't hear anymore. Then I turned my head and saw lights going. I looked at everyone. Everyone was facing down. Jason was next to me and I rolled him over. There was blood squirting everywhere. So I took my sweater off and tied it around his head to try and stop it. He had blood coming out of his eyes. As she looked back into the distance, she saw Christmas lights. So while barefoot and naked, with a freaking bullet in her head, she walked more than a mile in the cold, through a construction site, a pond, through a bush, and she kept walking until she found the house with the Christmas lights. She pounded on the door and kept ringing the doorbell until a couple woke up. She pleaded, please, please help me. We've all been shot. Three of my friends are dead. Wait, aren't there four? At this point, she still believed her boyfriend was alive. The couple wanted to call the police, but H.E. believed she was going to die and wanted to tell them everything that happened first. All things considered, the woman did have a bullet in her head, and we would later learn that medical personnel determined that the metal barrette she wore in her head deflected the bullet's full impact, and honestly, that's what saved her life. The couple gave H.G. a blanket and let her tell them what happened. Once she felt they knew everything, she let them call the police. She also asked them to tell her mother that she loved her. H.G. was extremely worried about the children at the school she teaches at. She kept wondering, who's going to take care of the kids in the school? Once the police arrived, they briefly questioned H.G. before paramedics took her to the hospital. She was able to provide the description of Jason's truck, and police were able to get the license plate from the vehicle registration records. As the morning began, the media began broadcasting the plate number. What H.G. didn't know was that after the intruder shot her and her friends, they had gone back to the home and loaded Jason's truck with everything that they deemed valuable. The police also found H.G.'s pet Nikki in a pool of blood on the bed. By 7.30 a.m., police found that Jason's truck was outside an apartment building downtown and that a black man was seen carrying a television set up to one of the apartments. The police ordered that the area be sealed off. Two officers were then sent up to the apartment. The apartment belonged to a man named Reginald Carr, and Stephanie was his girlfriend. Stephanie opened the door, and the police caught Reginald as he was trying to jump out the window. Police learned from Stephanie that Reginald had a brother named Jonathan, who drove an older car, a Plymouth Fury. Police found the car parked outside a house in a black part of town. Jonathan attempted to escape when he saw police, but was shortly captured. Less than 12 hours after the murders, both Reginald and Jonathan Carr were in police custody. Investigators retrieved a 38 caliber Lorsen semi-automatic handgun that a highway worker found along Route 96. The highway was near the soccer field where the victims were killed. The Kansas State Crime Lab confirmed it. It was the same weapon used on H.G. and her friends. Police linked the gun to the case of Andrew Schreiber, a 23-year-old white man who stopped at a come-and-go convenience store in East Wichita on December 7, 2000. Exactly one week before the quadruple homicide, 
Reginald and Jonathan Carr forced themselves into his car and made Andrew drive to multiple ATM machines for money. Andrew would later tell police, I was just hoping if I did what they said, they'd let me live. After retrieving the money, the Carr brothers made Andrew drive to a nearby field where they hit him with the pistol, pushed him out of the car, and shot out his tires. Luckily, Andrew survived and police linked the gun to evidence found in his tires. Investigators were able to link the weapons to another homicide of a woman named Miss Walenta on December 11th. The Carr brothers tried to take Miss Walenta's SUV while she was parked in the driveway of her home in East Wichita. The Carrs wanted a larger vehicle because it made it easier for them to hide victims. One of the brothers approached Mrs. Walenta asking for help of some kind. She found the situation very odd and slightly rolled down her window. The brother stuck a gun sideways into the small opening and shot her several times as she tried to drive away. Miss Walenta initially survived the shooting and is able to report it to police. She later became paralyzed from the waist down and unfortunately died from her injuries three weeks later. So as the trial began, the defense lawyers asked the court for two separate trials because they believed each lawyer would blame the other brother for the crimes. The prosecution argued that the trial already had 70 witnesses and was expected to last a month. Adding another trial would just be too expensive. Throughout the trial, the jury would become aware of extensive criminal record of Reginald since Jonathan's were sealed. Reginald was previously convicted of drug-related charges, violation of probation, aggravated assault, and subverting the legal process. Not to mention forgery, robbery, and drunk driving. Interestingly enough, in 1996, police let Reginald out early by mistake, a whole six months early, two days before he and his brother robbed and beat Andrew. Had police done their job, Jason, Aaron, Heather, and Mrs. Walita would have lived. The defense attorney continued appealing. On July 25, 2014, the Kansas Supreme Court overturned the Carl's death sentence on appeal. The court stated that the trial judge failed to separate the penalty proceedings for each defendant. The court also reversed three of each defendant's four capital murder convictions because the jury's instructions on sex crime-based murder were, and I quote, fatally erroneous and three of the multiple homicide capital murder charges duplicated the first. Now, despite this, the court still upheld most of the convictions against each of the brothers. Although they were now off death row, each brother is sentenced to serve at least 70 to 80 years in prison before being eligible for parole. The Kansas Attorney General once again appealed to the court. In March 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the Carr brothers' sentencing case, and in January 2016, the U.S. court did not find any constitutional violations and reinstated the death sentences. The brothers now sit on death row in Kansas El Dorado Correctional Facility. So doesn't this case kind of raise the question of whether or not this was race-related? Well, the thing is, Kansas does not have a hate crime law. So although some members of the Wichita community believe this was racially motivated because the victims were white and the perpetrators were black, the community members argue it wasn't. Reginald's girlfriend, Stephanie, she was white. But that doesn't negate the fact that this could be a race-related crime. I agree. It doesn't answer that question at all or whether these were racially motivated crimes. Um, but the Wichita police dismissed the idea 
uh, that this case was a race-motivated case. And investigators believed the crime to be motivated simply by opportunity. They were robbers and they just picked their victims at random. There wasn't much media coverage on the case either, outside of local newspapers. The only major publications to address this was the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Post. And these generally focused on a debate of whether or not this was race-related or race-motivated. It's also interesting to note that just one week later, a black man named Cornelius Oliver was accused and convicted of killing his girlfriend, her roommate, her cousin, and her friend. All black victims. Victims that are referred to as the Forgotten Four due to their lack of media coverage, and sadly, they could not compete with the media's attention on the white victims. Lastly, in addition to H.G. surviving this gruesome attack, she and Andrew, the young man who was mugged at the convenience store, they actually got really close during the trial. And this closeness later became a marriage. Uh, They were married in 2004. So out of the tragedy, something good did grow. I mean, going back to the news point, I found it very interesting that considering how many white victims there were, it didn't become a national syndicate. Like, this story didn't pick up traction. Not even bring into question the hate crime law. Yeah, but not many states have a law that actually addresses hate crimes or racially motivated crimes. That's very, very interesting and very true. I just found that, like, very suspicious that considering, like, you, they're playing at the angle of this is an opportunistic kill and, you know, just crimes were just opportunity-ridden. Why wouldn't you use this as the foundation of why you need a hate crimes law, considering you have such a variant of crimes that are all happening that appear to derive from racial means? We would love our listeners' input. When looking at the evidence, what do you think? Feel free to email us at crimechaserspodcast at gmail.com. And make sure you follow us on Instagram at, again, crimechaserspodcast. And remember, be alert. And stay safe in these streets. Catch us next time on Crime Crime Chasers. Chasers.